This is WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark. WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. Good morning, everybody. And joining me today on Campus Voices is Dean Mark Rieger of the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Dean Rieger just joined us on campus, I think August 6th was your first day, correct? Uh, uh, Yeah, August 1st, I arrived in Newark and started shortly after, yeah. And Dean Rieger comes to us from the University of Florida and has done a lot of work with different kinds of horticulture and fruit-bearing crops, brings a commitment to undergraduate education, extension, research, ecology, all the things that the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources stands for. What attracted you to the University of Delaware? What made you move north? Of the Mason-Dixon yeah. line. <laughs> Good question. I think everybody has a figment in their imagination of how great it is to be in Florida all the time. And I'll remind you that four months a year, you don't want to be there. So that's, and that that four months is just ending. But uh, no, seriously, um, you know, I'd, I'd been looking for uh, a job for a little while and I had been applying at smaller schools, University of Florida, almost 50,000 students, which is great. I mean, they do some wonderful things there, but my heart was more with the, the, the smaller school, the more intimate setting, and the undergraduates. And uh, once I started to read about the University of Delaware, I, I saw the commitment to undergraduate education and the commitment to quality over quantity. Um, you know, a lot of times we measure ourselves in higher education by the amount of grant funding, the amount of students, the, no, you know, the number of this or that. And here, uh, I think they're, they're really benchmarking their, their progress against what they've accomplished, uh, how society is different because we're here and the research and the extension and the teaching that we do. So that, it all just kind of snowballed and I was just so thrilled um, last May when I finally got through the interview process and, and, uh, and, and got the, um, uh, the nod. And I'm just, the first six weeks, this is the end of my sixth week, and I'm just so happy to have met the people that I've met to the, at this point and travel the state, and uh, I'm very comfortable here. One of the things you told me last week when we first met was that there's something unique about the University of Delaware's College of Agriculture and Natural Resources. That is, if you go out the back door, what do you find? Yes, our 350-acre classroom. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's the way we uh, play it up there. But, you know, it's a, it's a great resource. It's a big chunk of land. I think you could fit the, uh, the green area that most people are familiar with uh, on the north end of campus a couple times over uh, into that. And uh, at a lot of universities, you know, over time, you know, a lot of these major universities are a couple hundred years old now. The ag fields, the cows and things like that have been pushed further and further away as you've had to make room for parking lots and new buildings and all that. But not so here at Delaware. Um, They, you know, we we are on the south end of campus, but it's great to have a classroom and then to be able to walk five minutes outside to a botanic garden, a wetlands, a forest, uh, corn and soybean and cows and all that good old ag stuff, too. But uh, it's more than just a farm is what I want your listeners to, to recognize is that we do have, you know, songbird studies that go on there with our wildlife people. 
Foxes have been sighted on that land, you know, running around catching the little rodents and things. And there's, there's just a lot going on in that 350 acres. It's a real gem for the University of Delaware. One of the things I know you've appreciated since you moved here is that there are certain advantages of coming to coming from a big state like Florida to a smaller state like Delaware. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I was very pleased to, uh, you know, when I can travel from the north end of the state, have have breakfast, say, here with uh, important folks, uh, stop in Dover and meet the Secretary of Agriculture, and then have lunch in the southern part of the state and then make it back to uh, Newark to fly out of Philadelphia at 5 o'clock. I mean, that, that's what you can do. And if I were in, back in Florida, I, you know, I'd still be driving to Miami to, to have one meeting you know, from Gainesville. It was about a six-hour drive. And so those conveniences are great. And then, of course, you know, we share this Delmarva Peninsula, this really agriculturally productive and very sensitive ecological area with Maryland, with Virginia, and again, I've been here six weeks. I've already met the dean over at Maryland. I've met a number of extension professionals from different states. Uh, you know, there's a real tight-knit regional community where we're all trying to pull together to make this a better place. And, and we're, in some cases, ignoring the state line. We're working freely across it, and that's what we all need to do. I think that's one of the things you've really appreciated since you come here is that sense of cooperation and collaboration that you've found. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, again, you know, my immediate past experience, uh, Florida is a bit of, um, you know, an, an island. I mean, we, we only have a couple of states that border us to the north. And and there were a lot of, you know, different things. I mean, not a lot of states grow citrus and sugarcane, you know, so there isn't that opportunity to collaborate so much. But here in the, in the mid-Atlantic with Penn State and Rutgers and Maryland and Virginia Tech all real close by, Climatologically, fairly similar. Um, you know, the, the issues that uh, farmers and, and natural resource professionals face are fairly similar. So we can pull our resources and we can get things done. And you know what? In these times when there's declining state and federal monies for the types of things that we do, we have to pull together. And so I'm just I'm really glad to be part of that and, um, and look forward to do, you know, actually extending that reach to other states as well. Now, you're a horticulturist by yeah. trade, and one of the comments that you made when we met last week I thought was pretty funny is you refer to this area as a horticultural mecca. It really is. It really is. Uh, you know, among meccas, it might not be in the top ten list, okay? But uh, it, it certainly is. If you know, I, Well, really, uh, gardening is still, I think, the number one hobby in the United States. Last time I checked, I mean, if you look at all the, the money gets spent and time gets spent there— and you have Longwood, you have Winterthur, you have uh, a place called Mount Cuba that I visited last week. It's a beautiful native plants garden. It's just 10 miles from here. And then, you know, you have Scott Arboretum at Swarthmore. You can go down to the National Arboretum in D.C. You know, there, there's a lot of things within a train ride or a couple hours. And we have, I think, the best public gardens program in the country. I think a lot of people don't realize that yet. And it's going to be my job to advertise that. But we have a very special relationship with Longwood. They help to fund some of our graduate students. Those students go on to actually direct those great gardens of the world. And it's not just a place where, you know, you can go and enjoy a beautiful afternoon, but there's a lot of research. There's a lot of science that goes on there. There are some very, very rare plants in some of these botanic gardens that only exist, you know, in that one place. And it may be the only place where you can find seed for that. Uh, where a researcher might uh, discover new genes or new traits, um, things like that. So there's a lot going on there, and we should be very proud about that. 
Cool. Now, at Florida, you were the associate dean for teaching, so I know yeah. that one of the things that is near and dear to your heart is undergraduate education. I think you're really committed to that, and one of the things that 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 warms the IT part of my heart that you're also a big advocate for the use of technology to improve undergraduate education. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, that that's been a real joy uh, for the last several years to be involved with. Uh, like the Sloan Consortium, for example, a, a group that's committed to online and tech, teaching with technology throughout the nation. And, and Merlot, which is a group I belong to, it's not the wine, <laughs> but uh, they, people from California, and they struggle to make uh, Merlot out of multimedia educational resources for learning and online <laughs> teaching. I swear to God. That they really had to struggle, I, you know. I, uh, but anyway, we we get together uh, a couple times a year and we look at the latest technologies that are coming out that can enhance teaching. And as you know, as an IT person, there's a revolution going on on the web. Not that online is you know for everyone, but it can certainly enhance things. If you think about when you log on to Amazon, if you're a regular Amazon customer like I am. And uh, you bought a couple of books, and, and you get back on there, and uh, it says, hey, Mark, um, looks like you bought these two books on, let's say, climate change. Wouldn't you like to buy this book here on climate change that just came out? So it's, it's tracking your purchases. It's, it's trying to get to know who you are. Well, the same type of thing can be applied to learning, where students can be logging on and, and going through learning modules and it can be tracking their progress and maybe they're having a little bit of a problem with the quantitative aspects of a subject. It can see that and the software behind it will then send them to a module that helps them specifically with that. So it's almost like having a tutor that's watching you, seeing where you're having a little bit of a problem then directing you to where you need to go. And so the, the power of the internet is just going to explode here. It already has in many ways. And I think we can do a great job blending the live environment, the small student-to-faculty ratio that we have with those kinds of technologies to really take learning to the next level. I think that one thing we need to understand, though, is that not everything works online. I mean, there's, yeah. it's, I think you'd be looking at what sort of the flipping the classroom kinds of ideas. Exactly. Here at UD. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, we just talked about our 350-acre classroom, and, and we're, we're always going to need that. Um, you know, if you're teaching students about large animals, you're teaching them about songbirds or foxes and wetlands and things, they need to get out there and touch that and see that. But they don't need to sit in a classroom for 50 minutes three times a week necessarily. I mean, a lot of, a lot of lecturers will use PowerPoint presentations. Well, if you're doing that, it's very easy to, to adapt that to an online environment. And then when you do meet the, the uh, students in the, in the classic flipped model, uh, you have discussions, you have case studies, you take them out into the field, you do those enriching a activities that uh, sort of bolster uh, that online material. So that, that's what we're looking at is, is getting the most, you know, when the students get in contact with that world-class research faculty that we have in our classrooms, instead of lecturing at them, working with them, and, and really making the most of that time that they have. One of the things that you guys have that's unique in the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources is that you can do that kind of thing where you present the lectury kinds of things online, mm -hmm. but then in your, as you say, 350-acre classroom, right. you can really engage their senses. Yeah, and, and you know, if you think about it, uh, there's a lot of neuroscience now on how people learn, and, and we're starting to understand how the brain works and how the neurons fire when you're, when you're actually learning. And 
if you think about if you if you see something, you smell it, you touch it, you know, feel it, and, and not just read it, it's going to make a better data packet. It's going to make a better image in your brain about what that was. Um, I mean, think about it. I mean, when you've been to movies, and a lot of people can remember lines from The Godfather, you know, because there's this terrible image of a horse's head in a bed or whatever, and you remember, <laughs> you remember what the guy said. You know, it makes a big data packet in your brain somewhere, and that's a lot better than just looking at a page and reading words. And so we want to engage all of the senses, especially when you have, you know, flowers and animals and things like that that do smell different and look different and have different feels to them, and, and that, that makes a more lasting memory, a better experience for our students. Speaking of engaging the senses, I think one of the ways that many community members know the College of Agriculture and Natural Sciences is natural resources, excuse me, is through Ag Day, where people can actually walk around and feel things and experience things. And that, I mean, people know a lot about the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources and its outreach into the community. I mean, whether they're bringing in lawnmowers for a tune-up or getting a pint of chocolate ice cream from you dairy by the way i think it's the best chocolate ice cream in the area it's better than penn state's oh good good i'll give you your five dollars <laughs> later but uh no that that is the you know a big part of our mission and we're a little bit unique you know with respect to the other uh six colleges on campus where extension or outreach to the community is written into our mandate we get some federal funding for that uh, there were laws passed in the 19th century that provided for that. So we're committed to not just doing the research and, and having it in journals and, and uh, you know, moving science uh, incrementally along, but actually taking that science, going out into the field to the producers and, again, the natural resource professionals so they can actually put it into to work, you know, for society. So that's a huge part of, uh, we always talk about a tripartite mission teaching, research, extension. They're all equal. We're all one big family. We all have to work together there. And so we're very proud of that uh, aspect of the college. Now, when people think of extension, they usually think of guys wandering around advising people on farms, but there's so much more to extension than that, isn't there? Yeah, there, there really is. And, you know, and of course, we're proud about that. And we, we do have folks going out and uh, advising farmers on what to do and when. But I'll just give you an example. So, so Dover has a big Air Force base. And I just realized this the other day when I drove by there. And then I, t yeah, the first time I went by, I thought, wow. And, and um, we have uh, an extension agent that is a, sometimes we call them family youth agents or 4-H agents. These are people with social science backgrounds, very different from some of our, our hard science background folks. But nonetheless, they work with 4-H, they work with youth development. And if you think about a military base and you've got military families and kids being uprooted and moving around, there's a lot of counseling, there's a lot of after-school programs, there's a lot of need for um, those those types of educational programming. Uh, that we can provide. So we have an awful uh, large effort and actually just helping families uh, cope with things. And so that's not, that's not something you would have expected, right? That we would be out there working with military to help their children succeed. In fact, that's a big part of what we do. In addition to um, all these different kinds of things that we do in the community with Extension, um, I think one of the things that, again, as an IT person, I'm excited to hear about are the ways that technology can help uh, an extension agent. I mean, it used to be they'd yeah. carry, what, five big binders in the back of their trunk, trunk of their car or something like that? And 
Yeah, that that's yeah. That, that were the old days, and <laughs> and now we we've gone to laminated cards. But just think about, you know, smartphones. I mean, I think it's already the the main means of by which we access the internet, and it will only continue to grow. What if we could walk down a row of soybean plants or corn plants and, and you could actually use the camera on your smartphone, take a picture of the leaf that seems to have some kind of disease or insect thing going on. It would analyze that image, come back and tell you, this is what we think it is. This is what we think you should do. And uh, we can actually have ex- you know, a virtual extension experience in that case because you can't be everywhere uh, in every place. I mean, our travel budgets have been diminished. Those farm visits are great, but we can't serve every farmer exactly when they need it. So we're looking at those technological ways to be able to reach people and get on time, you know, uh, information to them when they need to make a decision. Uh, in many cases, you've got 24, 48 hours to pull the trigger on, on an approach to save a crop or, you know, make an application and, and uh, ensure that the, the yield's going to come in. So I'm very excited about the, the, uh, the, the future of extension as well as teaching. And honestly, some of the same materials that we can put on smartphones that can be used in the field can be those materials that we use for undergraduates in the classroom. And that's the neat part is we don't have to double do it. We can use it in multiple contexts. So it ends up being a synergistic kind of thing, if I can use that buzzword, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You know, and i just give you one example from back in Florida. So, you know, there's a lot of pest problems in Florida and, you know, cockroaches, uh, aren't a very pleasant subject to be thinking about, but they're a problem. I mean, and, and there's thousands of pest applicators. There was a woman in entomology who wrote an app for the iPhone on identifying different types of cockroaches, okay? And she put it up on iTunes and sold it for a buck ninety nine. Turns out thousands of them were being downloaded, thousands of these things, okay? Because the pest operator was going into the home and, and, and sharing with the people, the client, that this is the kind of roach you have and this is the kind of, you know, prevention uh, that we need to, to do here. And so uh, you never would have thought of that, you know. But again, um, that's, that's just part of the outreach effort that we do. And uh, I think five years from now, ten years from now, you're only going to see more of that. That's, that's pretty cool stuff. I, there's one last thing that you do that the college has done, and I know you're going to continue it that we really should highlight, and that's the collaboration with the Food Bank of Delaware. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was uh, my first week on the job. It was wonderful. Uh, so we have an annual event, and i uh, got to give credit to Dean Robin Morgan uh, and, and her crew for coming up with that event. I think it's been four or five years now. I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, a small part of land in our 350-acre classroom is set aside to grow food, and volunteers come in and they grow that food. And it's then donated to the Food Bank of Delaware. And I think the three-year running total is 16 tons, 16 tons of fresh produce, wholesome food going to the Food Bank of Delaware. And then this uh, event I was telling you about um, is a fundraiser also. We charge a little bit of a, you know, a ticket to get in. We have raffle. We have things like that. And we actually harvest the food from the garden. And local chefs come in and they prepare the food. And uh, so we raise money for the Food Bank of Delaware. We have live music. uh, And then we enjoy the food that we spent all summer uh, working together to produce. And so it's just a a wonderful event. And again, another sort of an illustration of community engagement that the University of Delaware is um, so well known for and colleges of agriculture are so well known for. We're speaking with Dean Mark Rieger from the University of Delaware's 
College of Agriculture and Natural Resources here on Campus Voices on WVUD and WVUD HD1 in Newark. And we've just got about 10 minutes left and just a couple of topics um, to talk about that I think you wouldn't ordinarily think of when you think of the a College of Agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the strengths of UD's College of Agriculture and Natural Resources is its involvement in biotech, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we have uh, probably half of the floor space, I believe, in the Delaware Bioto- Biotechnology Institute, the TBI, and uh, a lot of plant and animal scientists that work with genetics and genomics and biotech. And uh, honestly, you know, agriculture is probably one of the best examples of the use of biotech to solve problems that affect people. Going back to 1996, the first genetically modified crops that were put out into the field, you know, there's a lot of controversy about that, Richard. I don't know if you remember back in those days, but people were calling it Frankenfood, and, and there was a, you know, a lot of fear about it. It was something new. I, th- uh, I think there's still a lot of fear about it in yeah. Europe. Yeah. yeah, definitely. The Europeans are, are more anti-GMO. But uh, the, the side of the story that doesn't get told is, uh, let's take, for example, the insect-resistant corn or in, insect-resistant soybean that we have out there. Every year in the world, there are about 200,000 pesticide poisonings. Most of them are in developed countries where they can't read the labels. They're misapplying these pesticides, but they, they get their hands on them. They know they need to you know, kill the insects or they're going to lose their crop. Well, some of these genetically modified plants have an insecticide trait built into them that uh, prevents you from having to spray, you know, for those insects. And so we can actually document now the number of pesticide poisonings and pesticide accidents in the world have gone down precipitously. And the yields have come up. That's the other important part. And when the yields come up for these small landholder farmers, where an acre or two is all the land that they have, that's what they're going to get by the whole year on, Their profit goes up. They're able to buy clothing and shoes and things that they weren't able to uh, buy before. They're able to get vaccines for their children, send their kids to school, do things that they were never able to do when they were just basically growing enough food to live on. And so a lot of the, you know, early criticism that, oh, you know, the the GMO crops are only going to benefit the big companies. Absolutely not true. The last 18 years have have shown us that it has benefited the uh, developing world quite a bit. A lot of that research came from colleges of agriculture in the United States. So really it's not just about doing genetic modification to grow more tomatoes. No, 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 no. Uh, That's not it. I mean, you know, yield is always a big part. And and like I say, when when yields go up, um, profits go up, and and it's good for all the, uh, the farmers out there. But it's about reducing the footprint of agriculture on the environment, okay? So less insecticides being sprayed out there, better it is. Uh, if we have uh, types of corn that can um, better utilize water and fertilizer that they're working on now, I mean, that, those, are, those are precious resources and inexpensive inputs to agriculture that we can get away with or, or get away with not using and less runoff, less problems with nutrients going into the rivers and lakes and things like that. So they're... A lot of it is, is it, it's kind of right there at that, at that nexus between agriculture and natural resources is where a lot of the activity is going on. That's a good point. It, it does tie together the two parts of your college because if you can provide genetically modified seeds that will produce a better yield, then there's a need for cutting down fewer trees. 
Yeah, that that's one of the things. If there's any students up this early listening to us, and you know, you <laughs> got to consider that when you think about sustainability. Um, you know, over the last 100, 150 years, actually, a lot of farmland in the eastern United States has been abandoned. It's gone back into forest. So what have we seen? We've seen things like bobcats come back. We've seen uh, coyotes come back to the point where they're nuisances, actually, in the, uh, in the southeast. Coyotes will actually chew on irrigation lines, and they'll, do all, they'll eat cats, you know, I mean, things like that. So that as this habitat has come back, the wildlife has come back because we've walked away from land that used to be plowed down. So think about, you know, if, if we're doing intensive agriculture in, in, in one place, we're probably saving an acre of land somewhere else that doesn't have to be plowed to produce food for a, a growing population. And that's an important aspect of sustainability. I think this is something that is something that agriculture colleges all across the United States are seeing. This is a change, if you will, in the face of agriculture, isn't it? It's, it's tying together the growing agricultural products with sort of the stewardship of the land. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I was going through graduate school in the 1980s, you would go to a soil science department and you'd learn about um, soil physics and fertilizers and, you know, how much fertilizer to apply to grow and whatever. Now you you look at uh, plant and soil science departments like ours or soil science departments like the one at Florida that I just left, and a third or half the people are working on um, environmental issues, uh, stopping erosion, stopping runoff keeping nutrients from getting into waterways, those kinds of things. So we have a huge research and outreach effort that's designed to help the environment that are, that are right in our colleges. And again, that's something that you wouldn't think of, but think about the name. It's not just College of Agriculture, College of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Because agriculture depends on the natural resources. And look, Richard, everything, everything depends on a natural resource base, clean water, clean air, um, you know, clean soil on which we can either you know build things or grow food or whatever we need to do. We've got to preserve that natural resource base, and we work on that every day. One of the things when we spoke last week I hadn't thought of is that really a modern soil sciences department sort of helps a farmer develop a nutrient plan or the whole industry develop a nutrient plan. Mm-hmm. And I think um, Del- Delmarva Peninsula has got sort of some unique sustainability um, features um, compared to, say, growing crops in Nebraska or something like that. Yeah, it's really an interesting area. It reminds me of Florida in a way because, you know, it's a peninsula. It's got a high water table. It's fairly sensitive, you know, environmental region, you know, uh, something like that. But what's interesting about the the poultry industry, which is the biggest segment of agriculture in this region, is that um, a lot of the farmers here are growing the corn and soybeans that they feed to the chickens. And so, one of the things, going back to sustainability, um, one of the things you have, problems you have to solve to be sustainable in agriculture is what we call nutrient mass balance, okay? Is that we have to keep the amount of nutrient fairly constant. It can't be decreasing, 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 or increasing to intolerable levels. It has to be managed. And so if you're putting uh, fertilizers out, those nutrients are going into the soil, they're going then into the crops, we're feeding the crops to the animals, and then we're taking the animal litter and going back to the same field. We're completing a loop, okay, to where the nutrients are going back where they started. You think of other states, and I won't name them, (laughs) but there are other states in this country that have, you know, poultry industries or livestock industries or whatnot, and they're taking corn and soybean from the Midwest, from Missouri and Iowa, shipping them long distances, you know, feeding the poultry in that state. Then the poultry litter is going on to the fields of that state. 
And it's as if you're transporting nutrients from the soils of the Midwest to the soils of the states in question. And so they have a huge problem. But 80% of the feed that is needed by the poultry industry in the Delmarva is produced in the Delmarva. We're closing the nutrient loop. And that is a huge part of the sustainability question. And we're actually a lot further down the road than most people would appreciate. I'm not saying that there's not still a problem with some, you know, occasionally a thunderstorm happens at the wrong time and some of the nutrients go into the river. I mean, it, it just happens. It's just a lot of risk in farming. But to a great extent, because of the way the industry is structured here, they have a leg up on a lot of places in this country. This has been absolutely fascinating. I'm so glad you, you joined us, uh, Mark. It's, it's, you, you seem to have a real vision for continuing the universities and the colleges' vision of research, extension, and teaching. Yeah, well, 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 thank you very much. Uh, but yeah, we, we're, we're actually, you know, after six whole weeks, uh, my, my vision is uh, from the 30,000 foot level, but I've already seen some unique strengths in the college. I've already seen, uh, we, we talked about biotech, we talked about the soil and water issues, and there's many others. Uh, and what we hope to do is to continue to build on those. All right. Well, thank you so much, and welcome to Delaware. Thanks for having me, Richard. You've been talking. You've been listening to Dean Mark Rieger from the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources, and you can find more information by going to our show's website, www.udel.edu/campusvoices. Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website. Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at wvud.org.